Good afternoon, and welcome to Being Predictive, Financial AI and the Regulatory Future. I'm Jennifer Schulp, the Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Over the course of the past year, breakthroughs in generative artificial intelligence have captured the imagination of the public and policymakers. Often considered to be a new shiny object in many sectors, AI and forms of machine learning have been core financial technologies for decades. From algorithmic trading to market analysis to customer support, AI is already heavily integrated into financial markets and the provision of financial services. And financial market participants themselves both innovate cutting edge AI and consider risk management practices related to its use. But with the new spotlight shining on AI, financial regulators have been active. This year alone, more than half a dozen regulators have addressed AI through commentary or rulemaking, and the Biden administration's recent executive order on AI will likely have far-reaching implications for financial use cases. And Congress has been plenty busy on the topic as well, with roundtables and hearings, including a September hearing by the Senate Banking Committee specifically on artificial intelligence and financial services. We're excited today to be joined by a panel of experts on the use of AI in financial services to discuss the financial regulatory landscape in light of AI developments and the policy implications. I'm pleased to introduce the moderator for this discussion, Jack Soloway, who focuses on fintech policy as a policy analyst with Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. You can see some of the work that he's done on AI on the event website or at cato.org. We also hope that you'll join our discussion today by submitting questions on the event's website, YouTube or Facebook, or on X, also known as Twitter, using the hashtag CatoEcon. Without further ado, I'll turn it over to Jack. Thank you so much, Jen, and thank you to everyone with us online today for joining us. I'm really thrilled to have with me an all-star panel to discuss the timely topic of financial AI and the policy future. So without further ado, let's meet our experts. With me today are Amy Kayaza, partner and practice leader of FinTech and Financial Services at the global law firm, Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich and Rosati. Next, we have Daniel Gorfine, founder and CEO of the advisory firm, Gattaca Horizons LLC, and an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. And last but not least, Nat Hoops, vice president and head of public policy and regulatory affairs at AI lending marketplace, Upstart. Welcome all. To kick things off, I'm going to, uh, to kick things off. To kick things off, I'm going to invite each of our panelists to offer a brief opening statement on what, in their view, is the most pressing issue facing financial AI policy, or in other words, what's the most important thing for our audience to take away about this space? Amy, would you please start us off? Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, I think what I would ask people to take away or at least think about is that it would be a significant mistake to let technology upend the goals of financial regulation. You know, traditionally the goals are, are some combination of investor protection and supporting and encouraging the markets and innovation in the markets. Uh, you know, this is a really fast moving technology 
And there are lots and lots of opportunities to make regulation that's going to be out of date as quickly as it's passed. We've seen that happen in the past with other technologies. This is an area where it could it's very conceivable it could happen. Instead, I think it makes much more sense for regulators to think about a principles-based approach to regulation of financial services, at least in some areas of the financial in, the fintech industry. Um, there, are, there are decades of guidance on what the obligations of a financial intermediary are, how they need to think about those, those obligations when dealing with clients, um, and you know, what kinds of disclosures and substantive requirements adhere to that. Uh, th there's nothing about AI that changes that fundamentally, but uh, we've seen proposals already from some of the agencies, particularly the SEC, that seem to kind of upend some of the basic principles behind fiduciary duty and, and behind those type the principles that govern uh, the, the use of technology by a financial intermediary. Uh, there's no need for that. What we really need to do is, is um, study the technology, obviously think about where the pitfalls are, where the problems are, but uh, provide guidance that is not going to be out of date as soon as it's written and doesn't fundamentally change the relationship between uh, financial intermediary and its customers. Nat, would you like to go next? Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me and Decato. Uh, this, is a, this is a great group. Um, <clears throat> I would say two things. I think it's really important that AI and regulation intersect in a way that doesn't um, you sort of harm the consumer's ability to uh, find the best possible product for themselves. So if you think about the power of AI in credit underwriting, it enables financial institutions to get a very precise an accurate view of a consumer's ability to repay a loan and, and likelihood of doing so. And if regulation were to stifle the ability of financial institutions to harness that accuracy and power and, and use the additional data that AI can really process, you're gonna end up in a situation where AI will only be used to sort of maybe get a more precise view of a few consumers, the ones that are that are served by by traditional lending systems, and and we won't sort of capture the magic that that AI can deliver for those who have traditionally been left behind. And so there are a number of ways that that we can make sure that uh, you know this sort of the concerns about AI and some of the issues that are raised by the executive order. Um, are addressed in regulation without sort of stifling the innovation that is so necessary to kind of harness the benefits to protect access to credit or improve it, ideally. I think if you look at the history of credit in the United States, um, it's pretty sad story of, of not really improving greatly over a long period of time um, for, for so many consumers, you know, roughly half the country. And so I think uh, AI is an opportunity for a breakthrough, but but really, um, you know, we gotta we gotta make sure that we get it right. Let's turn to Daniel. Great. Well, thanks for having me. Good to be uh, joining all of you. And as a lawyer and and Washingtonian, of course, I can't give you just one point. I'll have to give you multiple here. But uh, I do want to pick up where Jen started in terms of framing, and I think to level set. It's important to remind folks that artificial intelligence in financial services is not new. And this is part of a steady progression that we've seen over the decades of using computers and more and more advanced analytics uh, to increase automation in the financial services space. 
We see it in capital markets when it comes to proprietary trading. Uh, we see it on, on the consumer finance side in terms of underwriting, and we see it in ways to like counter fraud um, and enhance compliance. Now, of course, there have been advances in these technologies. And I do think that the recent rollout of these large language models and uh, subset, you know, known as Gen AI is going to have a tremendous impact on financial markets and services. But all of this is happening along a continuum. And it's a continuum within financial services where we already have kind of well-established investor and consumer protection laws, as well as model risk management frameworks. And we'll talk about this a little bit more. Um, but in many ways, I would actually argue that the financial services space can be a bit of a model for broader society when we think about how to mitigate some of the risks involved with new technologies, including artificial intelligence. So you asked for, for, for a few you know, key things to be looking out for. So I'm going to lay out four items that we'll kind of go into more detail, I think, throughout the conversation. But I think guiding principles for policy should include, you know, first and foremost, always comparing new technologies, including AI-based models, relative to the status quo. And the status quo in financial services is highly imperfect. So we should always be asking the question, do these innovations incrementally improve access to financial services and the quality of financial services? And that should actually be the, the baseline question, not whether it's perfect in its own right. Um, secondly, I do think that a big area of focus for regulators should be around enhancing clarity within model risk management frameworks to make sure that small banks, financial institutions have clarity where they feel comfortable and confident adopting new AI technologies. Um, I do think a third area is around the need for a federal data privacy framework. I mean, obviously data is so important to the functioning of models that we should have baseline kind of understandings and safeguards in place. And then I think the, the last point I would flag here is the importance of avoiding hasty and speculative regulation um, that can chill innovation. It's very easy in this sensational environment to watch an episode of Black Mirror and decide that we have to do a lot of preemptive things that are not tailored to actually solving risks that exist in the marketplace. Um, so I would, I'd be very wary of things that are kind of looking for a problem before we've truly identified where there are risks that need to be mitigated. Thank you so much, Daniel. And I think that's really a great place to uh, jump into our first question. So we've heard a lot about high-level principles to keep in mind for when regulators um, address this space anew, even though, as we've already heard, uh, this is a space that's been regulated for, for years now. And on October 30th, the Biden administration, as we heard, released a long-anticipated executive order on the development and use of AI. And what's notable for our conversation is that while the order took a whole of government approach to AI, the order also described financial services as a critical field where the stakes of AI policy are particularly high. And Daniel, um, let's start with you again. Um, what in your view is going to be the impact, if any, long-term of the Biden AI executive order on FinTech and financial AI? So look, I will, I will say this. I think the EO um, does make clear that this is a big topic, and obviously this is an important area for innovation. Within the financial services context, it, it, it doesn't say a lot in particular. It basically calls on agencies to assess existing laws and regulations to determine if there are gaps. Now, on the one hand, I think that does allow an opportunity for regulators to step back and say, hey, we do have existing investor and consumer protection laws. We do have model risk management frameworks that we can use to mitigate identifiable risks. 
Um, and so they can take an approach of let's study, let's also make sure we understand what these new innovations mean before being premature or preemptive with certain types of regulations that are unnecessary. I think the flip side of it is that a regulator could also take the EO and say, well, there seems to be a call to act. And that goes to kind of that fourth principle that I named before, which is like, we shouldn't be doing things that are hasty or not indicated. If we don't identify specific risks, um, we shouldn't be seeking to immediately regulate without kind of, you know, shoot first and ask questions later kind of an approach, because that will have unintended consequences. Um, there were some other, I think, good points within the EO. It, al it also does call for a federal data privacy framework, uh, which I do think is important when you think about the evolution of AI. Um, there was also a call for more research and development into privacy enhancing technologies, which again, I think is actually very important in an increasingly digitized economy. Um, so there were certainly some good elements there. There's also the aspect of looking at how AI tools can help government regulators and financial institutions combat fraud. So I think recognizing kind of the beneficial effects of AI tools is also very important. But, you know, overall, there's a lot um, that can be interpreted, quite frankly, by different agency uh, heads to decide if they want to plow forward or not, or recognize that they actually have kind of existing frameworks that can be clarified and amplified uh, to address specific risks that they identify. Thank you, Daniel. And uh, so we just heard about the uh, potential risk of unintended consequences from rulemaking, uh, from regulatory efforts. Um, Amy, I'd love to turn to you for your perspective on what we've seen already um, from CFPB to SEC activity in this space, even before uh, the Biden executive order um, this year. And in particular, I'm thinking about uh, the SEC's proposed rules on predictive data analytics. Um, from your perspective, is the, does that proposed rulemaking fall guilty of uh, what Daniel mentioned in terms of shooting from the hip? What might be some of the unintended consequences of rulemaking approaches like that one? Yeah, I agree with that general concept. Uh, the, the proposal does not seem to be, as I said before, kind of consistent with how we think about, uh, in this case, investment advisor and broker-dealer obligations. It really changes fundamentally some of the ways that investment advisors and broker-dealers uh, would interact with their clients and customers based on, on the way that the rule is written. It covers uh, arguably such a broad amount of technologies that uh, it's well beyond AI. It's obviously targeted in part at AI, but it, it could cover you know the Excel, Excel spreadsheet I do my budget on uh, for the most part. So it, it, it does seem to sort of be well, not as well thought through um, and not as well versed in the technology as we would really like. Um, for me, some of the really big unintended consequences are we're going to wrap all kinds of uh, transactions that have occurred in the market uh, into a new rule and change fundamentally the way that they're used in a way that kind of squashes innovation within uh, the, especially the investment advisor and broker dealer industries. Um, I think that that could be really, really problematic. Uh, I also do think it is the kind of rule that could be obsolete pretty quickly because the way it's the way it's drawn is meant to bring in you know a very very broad range of technologies, but to, but you know very quickly the technology is going to change in ways that we can't predict. Um, you know, I also think a really fundamental issue with it is that um, it the the way the predictive data rule is written it requires advisors and broker dealers to not only identify conflicts of interest that may arise from the use of of 
what are called covered technologies, predictive data uh, analytics. The the way that 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 is it covers every single conflict of interest, and it requires that the advisor or the broker dealer not just identify and disclose those those conflicts, but that the advisor eliminate or neutralize the conflicts. That's probably well nigh impossible in most situations. Uh, you know, it's both going to be impossible to identify every conflict and impossible to neutralize or mitigate it. Uh, to the extent that it is possible, it's going to be really favor big actors with you know compliance departments that have hundreds, if not thousands, of, of compliance people and lawyers and everyone else. Whereas your small kind of innovative advisors and broker dealers are going to have no chance um, at actually being able to comply with this law, which is likely to push them out of the market, uh, or alternatively uh, facilitate non-compliance uh, in a way that, you know, if you can't if you can't actually comply, what do you do? You either get out of the market or you just ignore what you need to do to comply. Neither of those is particularly helpful to customers or, or clients of broker dealers or advisors, um, and it just potentially really stifles the market and innovation in the market. Daniel, I see you uh, You have some thoughts as well you'd like to jump in with. Yeah, I just have to, I, you know, kind of reinforce some, some additional points there. I, I completely agree. I mean, I think this is an example of a rulemaking that is hasty and premature, and it violates the principle of being tech neutral. I mean, it casts the use of technology in such a negative light. Um, and, and I would point at two kind of underlying assumptions in the rule that I think need to be challenged. And the first is that, you know, technology and mobile and internet platforms are necessarily more likely to cause harm to investors. And then there's a second assumption in there that they're less likely to be detected. And that's kind of the rationale that the, uh, the agency is using to promote the rule. And I'd challenge both of those. I mean, if you think about where we've evolved from, and again, comparing to the status quo, you know, old boiler rooms where you were using kind of a telephone to call potential investors to sell a product were a lot more opaque and I would argue had a much higher risk of harm than something that is necessarily scalable to many users where you can identify it much, much more readily. If there's a problem with a platform, you would see it. You would see it pretty quickly and you could neutralize that pretty quickly as well from an enforcement perspective if there's an actual problem. So I think that to, to, to necessarily assume that it's more likely to cause harm, I think it's completely the opposite. I think if you look at the use of tech and, and platforms today, they've brought costs down for retail investors. They're giving them more information, um, more access to opportunity. Uh, they're far more efficient. Now, again, that's not to say that there can't be challenges with the platforms and, and certain business models, but those would be readily identifiable through any kind of mobile or internet-based platform. So I don't agree with the underlying assumptions that kind of establish why we would even need this rule in the first place. Um, so this to me does strike as something that's that's looking to jump out prematurely uh, when I'm not clear what harm we're actually trying to solve for. So I, I think you, you raised a really... Okay. Yeah. Yeah, please well, jump in there. Oh, I was just going to say that I think the, the the challenge that everyone has in assessing this area is even just defining it, right? So if you look at definitions of um, AI, right, or, or predictive technologies, um, if everything is AI, then nothing is AI, right? I mean, if, if, if you're trying to claim that things that are just deeply embedded in the entire systems of just delivering products and services in the economy are now somehow subject to some totally alternative legal and regulatory regime than they ever have been, then I think 
too many people are just going to throw up their hands and and just sort of say, well, I can just take a best stab at what I think compliance with this means and do the best I can and then kind of continue to do my business as I've been doing it broadly, right? And so I'm sort of reminded overall in this space of, of something that Aaron Klein from Brookings says often, which is government does really well when it assigns liability and then kind of gets out of the way. So if you think about your credit card statement, if you lose your credit card, somebody steals your credit card, your maximum liability is $500 you know, beyond that, you know, you can't be, and that was set up by the government, right? So you can't just be on the hook for indefinite purchases by, you know, somebody can't go buy a boat with your credit card and, and you're on the hook to pay for it. So that was established by the government and, and the private sector did a good job of figuring out within that kind of consumer protection regime, how to, how to assign values and so forth. And so when I think about predictive analytics, it feels as though we should be looking at principles-based regulation that enables a similar situation where, for instance, if you were to put a product in market using predictive analytics that was not accurate and you're and this, you know, we hear things about like AI is hallucinating. Well, if you're a private sector entity and you put together a hallucinating algorithm that's recommending terrible stocks to people and people do badly, if if there's a, an established chain of liability, the ability to bring private action in, in whatever case, in those cases, then then you have the consumer protection, the ability to address harms because you've essentially said, you know, you have an obligation as a private sector entity to put an accurate algorithm in place, right? And so I think sometimes we get in trouble in regulation when we try to get overly specific and prescriptive, right? And and if we don't define the terms well, what we're trying to, to look at. And so I, I am encouraging um, the administration and, and regulators as they tackle to tackle these these different challenges in segments. So don't try to do huge overarching rules. Look at look at things like algorithms and lending. Look, look specifically at um, you know uh, predictive or, or you know trading technologies. Look things very very precisely, and then see whether or not the current protections for consumers or investors are adequate under the current law before you have to feel like, oh, we're going to have to reinvent the wheel and we're going to just throw, you know, everything that fits into some broad category into some brand new legal regime or, or regulatory regime when these technologies, to Daniel's point, everyone's point, are already deeply embedded and in use today. And so um, I don't I don't follow the specific rule that uh, because we're in the lending space, uh, less in the broker dealer space. But I think um, that's the way that I think we can evolve this societally is look at the history of what has really worked well for consumers and and keep things as simple as possible um and 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 kind of create a framework step by step by step rather than try to kind of rush into an overarching new new regime i think that's right if you don't mind sorry jack i i, I no, think please. that's absolutely right you know i, I think on the broker dealer advisor side the fiduciary duty reg, reg Right, best interest get us a pretty long way if you're doing something that is you know against the interest of your clients you're going to have liability under that fiduciary obligation or reg best interest you don't need an, a new rule for this particular technology and uh you know nathan on your side i think you'd have tyla there there are all kinds of rules out there to your point that uh that ostensibly already cover some of the issues that we're trying to, to uh, address here um, and, you know, on top of it, you know, 
again, if we move quickly, we're not going to move in the right way. We're going to uh, potentially stifle innovation, and you know, this just doesn't really seem to be a need for it. Have done. I mean, I, I think to the executive order. One of the things that the executive order lays out is a requirement, a recommendation to the regulators to look for gaps to start to do work in AI, and. And this is not to criticize the executive order, but if I were sitting at the CFPB or the OCC in our space, the, the bank regulatory agencies, the consumer regulators, they have done quite a bit of work. They've been taking requests for information and comment from the public for, for a few years now. I think the CFPB has laid out quite a, a lot of warnings via um, guidance documents saying you, you have to comply with the Equal Credit Opportunity Act's requirement that you're that your AI be explainable from the standpoint of, you know, providing an adverse action notice. Why did I not get a good rate on this loan? Or why did I, why did I get declined? You can't simply say, well, cause the algorithm said, you know, you have to explain what were the, what were the largest reasons that go, that kind of emerged out of the data um, and the, the work that was done on my credit file to say why, why I couldn't be approved for this loan. And so I think, um, you know, I would say that, that those independent agencies have, have been doing a pretty diligent job of looking at these and looking at how their existing tools can be used and the existing laws can be used. Um, and for the most part, they haven't been sort of throwing up their hands and saying, we don't have enough tools to police this market. They've been reminding people, the old laws still apply just because the technology is new doesn't mean the old law doesn't apply. And they've done a nice job, I think, of reminding people of that and, and reminding market participants of that. And so I think it's important for Cato and others that ever to look at that inventory of requests for information, of guidance documents, of regulatory guidance, of regulatory, you know, you, you know, issuance of new regulation and say, here is the sum total of what has been done to date, you know, since the topic of AI, you know, in quotes, sort of emerged into the, the lexicon in a big way, um, you know, three or four years ago. And, and, and sorry, Jack, we'll let you ask a question eventually. But, uh, I just want to <laughs> jump right back in on, on, on one best. more point in terms in, in terms of the inventory that we're talking about. So, you know, we've talked about the consumer protection laws, you know, in terms of fair lending on the investor protection side. You also can't use models to engage in wash trading or spoofing and other types of trade manipulation. But what also underpins kind of the bank regulatory structure, as well as on the capital market side, is this concept of model risk management. And I just want to spend a second to make sure folks understand what that means. You know, there are very, very robust frameworks around what regulated institutions must do when they develop any new type of model. And that includes kind of the most basic models. They can be linear regression models all the way to the most complex AI based models. And those frameworks get into things like testing and governance and oversight of the model and monitoring of the model. So, you know, to, to, to Nat's point, there's a lot that's already in place. Now, I do think, you know, that where regulators can probably be a bit proactive is in saying if there are aspects of those model risk management frameworks that become more relevant or more important in the context of particular types of AI, like Gen AI, then you can certainly provide more clarity there, more guidance there. You can say, hey, testing and ongoing monitoring of models takes on even more importance when you're dealing with self-learning type models, right? That looks a little bit different than legacy. So it's the fine points on it, but, 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 but I think our broader point that we're making here is that the frameworks are in place, the protections, the laws are in place, model risk frameworks are in place, 
Um, and so I think where everyone has a little trepidation is that if you just say, well, look for the gaps, it sends a bit of a message of like, you're supposed to do something, you know, affirmative. And that's where you worry about things being hasty and premature. So uh, a minute ago, uh, Nat mentioned equal credit opportunity. And I think we've heard from a lot of folks uh, already today that there's potentially often a disconnect between perceived harm or perceived risk on the part of regulators and what the nature of technology is uh, at this moment and also potentially in the future. And I would love to address some of what are often, often seem like competing narratives out there um, regarding AI and the subject of financial inclusion and access to credit and loans. Um, and Nat, I'd love to, to go back to you on this subject and hear your thoughts on really what, what is the potential of AI uh, in the financial inclusion conversation in space? Sure. Well, I'll give you an example as it meets the regulatory space. So, you know, we at Upstart are using uh, more data uh, provided by the consumer voluntarily and from the credit file, you know, think about your, your credit file at the credit bureau, TransUnion, Equifax, Experian, in order to get a more accurate prediction of, of whether you would default on, on an auto loan, unsecured personal loan, home equity line of credit, et cetera. And, and by, by using that additional data and using AI and machine learning tools to process that data, we're able to look at someone who would not look credit worthy to a traditional lender if they walked into a bank branch with a bunch of paperwork and said, hi, you know, I'm, um, I'm looking for a loan. They wouldn't necessarily look very credit worthy because of their credit score. But if you actually look at their job occupation and they provide you voluntary information about the, from the, their bank account, they provide you voluntary information about their uh, education history, all of a sudden, you know, you can put all of that data into a into a, a very powerful model, and you can usually approve uh, many more people. So, thirty to forty percent more Black borrowers, but more Hispanic borrowers, uh, all uh, able to access um, credit uh, seamlessly via the internet. Right. So that's a huge opportunity for for gains for borrowers who have traditionally been left behind by a traditional credit score. So four fifths of Black borrowers have a credit score under seven hundred. Um, many have never defaulted on a loan. They just haven't had the same experience with credit as those whose parents signed them up, put them on their credit card or earlier in their life in college or, or whatever, or, or um, you know, a variety of explanations. And so this is a huge opportunity of AI to, to essentially peer down and look at who is going to be a likely uh, you know, person to repay, um, you, who, who doesn't you know, present as credit worthy under the traditional system. Now, the question is, how do you regulate that? How do you make sure that that's fair? Like, how do we make sure that um, we're not gonna then pick and choose people with low credit scores who end up overwhelmingly be white, right? That would, that would potentially have a risk of disparate impact or disparate treatment under the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. And so, you know, fortunately we have tools and fair lending testing to do that. Um, but I think we, what we have lacked is the confidence on the part of financial institutions to say, I can stand up an AI model and look at it compared to my traditional model and see that I'm approving more minority borrowers. I'm improving people at better rates. Therefore, I can feel confidence that I can switch models without running afoul of some of the concerns that, that Daniel said mentioned about model risk governance or some of the other prudential regulation sort of fears of, you know, are we going to put this new model into the production? And then all of a sudden, 
you know, we're not going to know what the results might be. And therefore, is it too, is it sort of too risky from the standpoint of, of either fairness or safety and soundness? And so I think there is an enormous need for the regulators to remind lenders that they have an obligation to find the less discriminatory alternative model available in the market. Today, the scrutiny ends up running almost entirely towards the new entrant, towards the AI provider, rather than towards the traditional system. And so that framework Daniel mentioned of, you have to look at whether it's improving the status quo as the key question. Uh, that's not really being done today, unfortunately. It's too often, well, this newer technology, we don't know, you know how, how it will do over 50 years, so we're gonna stick with the traditional models. And that's not what the law says. The law says, if you have a, an equally predictive and equal a, a model that meets your business purpose and it's less discriminatory, then you should put it into place. And so that's not being sort of enforced out there in the market today, um, because if it were, then the models, the AI models would be in great demand from, from traditional lenders and they feel, you know, they don't feel that pressure. So I would say that that's one of the things that, um, you know, educational forums like this and Cato and, th you know, the work that can be done to say, well, wait a second, are the traditional tools that are being used being held to these standards? Uh, do, are they living up to the regulations and the guidance? Are they are they meeting the the letter and the spirit of the law uh, of that were written in say the 1970s Equal Credit Opportunity Act written back then? Are they meeting that standard? And I think often we might say actually those traditional tools are falling short, and the new tools have a better chance to improve it. So uh, heard a lot about the potential of new tools to actually uh, improve the status quo in terms of lending and, and other financial services more broadly for folks. And I'm wondering, um, to your point, Nat, uh, to what extent do existing rules on the books potentially create some frictions there where the technology itself um, might actually be a tool for expanding opportunity, but some of the existing regulatory frameworks, to your point about the ECOA um, and laws, uh, for example, from the 1970s, um, are there any examples where existing frameworks, existing uh, rules and regulations might actually stymie some of that development? And Daniel, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Yeah, I, so, so I think it ties to what Nat was just saying. I actually think that it's it's a little bit of tone in how you're messaging application of certain rules and laws. I don't know that, you know, so the fair lending laws in their own right, I don't see as, as necessarily chilling. To the contrary, what it should be doing is what Nat just said, which is it should be encouraging, you know, banks, lenders to adopt better, more transparent technologies that can be more accurate and more fair. The problem comes in, so the Bureau, CFPB, had recently published adverse action guidance. And this is a good example of kind of what I'm getting at here, which is that the law unambiguously requires a lender to give a reason for a denial. If a consumer receives a denial on a credit application, they have to give a reason for that adverse action. That's the law. Completely agree with it. The guidance that was released, though, had a tone where it focused almost exclusively on new technologies and the use of AI and said that this applies, we remind everybody it applies to all lenders, but specifically, if you're using new technology, you must be incredibly specific with the reason for a denial, and it seemed to, to target the use of new technologies. Now, the problem with that is twofold. One, I would argue that the new technologies can be even more transparent than legacy approaches. 
Certainly a face-to-face, -face, you know, loan application and potential denial is the most opaque form of, of lending activity. The new technologies would allow you to be able to kind of quantify and more accurately express why there was a denial. Um, but this is sending a bit of a signal that somehow these new tools are more opaque, which is not necessarily the case. And then the, the, the second point is that if you are a small bank, if you are a community bank or a credit union, and you're trying to read the tea leaves as to what the regulator wants, your takeaway is likely going to be, goodness, we have to be wary of new technologies. I should rely on these traditional legacy scoring systems, which we know have heavy correlations with protected class characteristics and score very poorly when it comes to fairness. So it's the application of the rules and the way we message around it that I think has a powerful impact on the marketplace. I would rather come at this and say, we have this re requirement, this responsibility to tell somebody why they were declined. New technologies may help you be even more accurate and transparent in conveying that reason. That's a very different message than, than sending a signal that the use of a new technology is somehow more likely to violate the law. So I, I, you know, I, point, I point to that as being kind of the, the fine line, and a lot of it is around the messaging and the way that this is communicated, especially to smaller fi financial institutions that don't have you know, massive compliance teams that can parse through this. You have to make a quick decision. Am I upgrading my system or am I relying on legacy? Well, sounds like I should stick to the legacy approach, which is the status quo that we're trying to improve upon. Yeah, and I, I'll give you a fun example. Let's let's just think about a futuristic example where somebody could use one of these new AI tools, these large language models, and harness to the data that's available publicly, and say, put it into the model. You know, not you're not even working with a, a lender yet, but you put it into the model. What rate should I qualify for? Right? Here's the information about myself. I know that I'm a 680 credit score. My income is this, my job type is this. I'm going to put in some information into a large language model. What rate should I qualify for? And then the the financial institute, and then you say, ah, your rate on an unsecured personal loan should be 15%, right? And then you go to the financial institution and you go to apply. You put in all that same data. And the the financial institution says, no, your, your rate, we're saying your rate is 28%, right? All of a sudden, the consumer is armed with a data point that says, well, wait a second, there's something off there. And then you could query the financial institution and say, why is my rate worse than it seems like it should be based on this sort of the aggregate sense of my risk that's out there in, in, in the AI universe? And the financial institution would, would have an obligation to say, well, we looked into your files and it turns out that there are these three things, your credit utilization, your debt to income ratio, and your, your employment type being a more unstable employment that, that are a little bit different than what you might perceive, you know, you put into the original thing. And then the person is now armed with three or four pieces of information that they could say, well, maybe if I change this practice, all of a sudden now I can get that much better rate, right? If that future can't emerge because the consumer can't use the tool, right? The large language model. If the financial institution can't establish a chat bot that has the ability to work with the consumer to try to use this, harness this vast data power to get the person the better rate, then we're sort of back in this world of why did I get declined? Your credit score is too low. Why is my credit score too low? Well, that's a very complicated question that boils down to sort of four pre-filled reasons for denial that are pretty lame. We were not really giving the customer very much information about what they might need to do to improve their circumstance. So I think there's a, a, a lot of innovation potential in data and AI to improve people's lives if it can be harnessed both by the consumer and by the 
the private marketplace. But if we sort of are discouraging people from innovating in this area, then and they're going to stick with the traditional credit score based model, there's not going to be that kind of innovation. And people are going to be stuck with this technology, you know, a credit score that was invented in the mid 1980s is the reason, you know, I have a low credit score. I don't really understand why, but it's pretty bad. And I just know that that hurt me and gave me a bad, bad rate on my loan. Jack, if you don't mind, I'd like to come at this at a Please. slightly different angle. Uh, you know, I think one of the one of the potentially more subtle changes in regulation on the part of the SEC recently has been that there have been a series of interpretive releases and enforcement actions that have suggested that if you have a retail client, someone who's not a big institutional client, complex financial instruments may be fundamentally, in the SEC's view, a violation of fiduciary duty, because it's very difficult for a retail investor to understand that complexity. That's the kind of uh, existing interpretation that, I mean, first of all, I think is problematic for a lot of reasons, but for the for today's discussion could potentially mean that a system, the use of a technology that very few people, uh, including more sophisticated investors, are going to understand is inherently um, inconsistent with the fiduciary duty of an advisor or the obligation to act in best interest of the customer on the part of a broker dealer. This, it's a trend that we've seen over the past, you know, I don't know, five to 10 years uh, that's been concerning for a lot of reasons. And I think it's something that could kind of rear its ugly head in terms of AI as well. Yeah, and, and Jack, just to, to, to add to some of this, I mean, I think one of the biggest concerns that I would have in stunting any of these innovations and adoption of these innovations is this is also not happening in a vacuum. Like we should think about the global context. There's going to be really fierce global competition around the use of AI in multiple different sectors, including financial services. Next generation models will be adopting AI. And when I say models, I mean financial services models, you know, whether it's on the consumer finance side or whether it's in markets. So again, I think we have to confidently, you know, step forward and we need to say, how do we foster the safe adoption of these technologies, recognizing that we do need to control for risk and that is imperative. So I don't think any of us would advocate otherwise, but the message matters, interpretations matter. And you need to think about the incentive. Are you incentivizing the industry to kind of stay in the status quo, or are you incentivizing adoption of what you know is the, the, the trajectory that the world is on, which is going to be adopting these technologies? So I do, you know, I, I, obviously we're talking about these in certain use cases, but there's a broader context to all of this. And if we go slow, we lose our first mover advantage, quite frankly, and we lose our competitive advantage, I think, globally with the financial services that we offer. So I think that's a, a really important point about losing the potential, uh, you know, activity at the frontier of this space and really uh, risking chilling innovation more broadly as, as a matter of, you know, both access to new tools for consumers, but also a question perhaps of national competitiveness. Um, what, are, what are folks' thoughts on the extent to which uh, regulatory activity that we've seen in this space might actually um, make things more difficult for smaller firms, new upstarts to enter uh, a marketplace? Well, as an upstart, <laughs> the name of our company, <laughs> um, 
I, I, I would say I do believe that American entrepreneurship is is alive and well. I don't I don't think we should overstate the degree to which the regulatory Leviathan is going to totally discourage innovation. Um, and again, I think some of it gets back to this whole question of <clears throat> is there enough clarity about you know the the legal framework that you operate in within a specific market segment that is tied to something that you know has been passed down for a few years. It's like is when you're trying to when you're trying to reinvent the wheel all the time and you're trying to say now to comply you have to do something completely different than you've ever done and you're redoing that every three or four or five years as the regulatory pendulum or the political pendulum swings back and forth i think that's when i start to worry that we as a as a country are going to lose our competitiveness because you know as i mentioned it's like think about that credit card market that your maximum liability is 500 dollars like so much innovation has been enabled in the sense of you know the ability to to pay in different ways and and to and to um, you know not be concerned that that you're gonna you know be in in a pickle and so I think our our system needs to remember that continuity of rulemaking continuity of a legal framework is something that itself is a value and a virtue um, and that's why that inventory of what are the existing tools what are the existing things that have been done rather than you know every time somebody new enters an agency job the assumption is well nothing was being done on ai right nothing was being done you know to protect investors or you know nothing was being done uh you know on on uh, making sure that predictive analytics um you know doesn't doesn't sort of send a, a customer into a, a really bad situation with their personal finances and so that's where i think we should um you know really need to to keep that inventory going um, because without it, it's that feeling like everything is just new all over again and we have to start fresh. To that point of, uh, of an existing inventory, um, I was wondering if we could double click on the idea of you know, a thicket of rules that's already on the books and how this might uh, perhaps advantage incumbents and maybe pose some challenges uh, to those startups, to those smaller firms. I was wondering, Amy, if you had any thoughts on this in particular. Yeah, I, it's, I mean, to reiterate what I said before, I think any type of uh, regulation that really adds significantly to the regulatory burden that faces a company that's trying to innovate is really going to favor those that are already big players in the space. And uh, you know, a couple a couple times we've reiterated that this is AI is a technology that's been used for decades. Uh, it's used by big investment banks and and big four hundred one k advisors, and it's used by uh, you know all kinds of intermediaries in in the space. Uh, you know, that, that work started with innovative startups and has sort of gradually been brought into big financial institutions. Um, they've got a competitive advantage, especially when there's more compliance obligation on the books. Uh, and, you know, in contrast, if you've got a startup that's got some fabulous new technology and it's able to use it to really, um, you know, create new ways of investing money, to really provide access to a new type of investor, to um, to the kinds of tools that we're seeing AI involve and that's been that have been very effective for big institutional investors, 
that small startup is going to have a lot harder time um, dealing with the compliance without ratcheting up its costs really, really quickly. Um, you know, I, I want to be clear. I don't. It's not that I think there should be no no oversight here. It's not that I think there are no dangers here. Of course, there are when you're dealing with people money, people's money. There always are. But what you want to do is sort of enable those who are in the market, um, providing new tools to actually innovate and to sell those tools both to customers and then potentially to, to you know, others in the financial space. Um, you know, outside investment management, another really great example of how uh, AI is being used in really great ways and ways that have been addressed by the executive order is to combat fraud. Um, you know, AI provides tools to all kinds of financial in, uh, uh, intermediaries to detect fraud and to protect um, investors and protect money and just really make the markets cleaner in a way that I think most people are pretty comfortable with. Um, you know, again, if you're holding you're holding the actors in the space to a higher standard than you have traditionally and to a standard that may be impossible to actually adhere to, you're going to end up without innovation. You're going to end up without startups. And those are some of the really prime movers in this space uh, that are making things better and using this technology in ways that I think are very exciting and will create more access and make the markets a safer place. We are a startup. I mean, to, to that point, I will say that they, the government has tried to do some things and Dan worked a lot on these uh, sandboxes, regulatory sandboxes to make sure that that new entrants, you know, feel like they have a place to go to ask questions of the government. And, you know, do I think that if I'm doing this, am I probably on the right track towards complying? And we at Upstart uh, went to the CFPB very early on and participated in, in what was called the No Action Letter Program. It was under Project Catalyst and essentially shared all of the data um, with the CFPB on the lending results that were coming from our lending partners with our algorithm and said, you know, here's, here's what we're trying to do in terms of increasing access to credit, making lending more fair. Um, our intentions are good. Here's the data. We're going to report it to you. And in return, will you be willing to tell the world that, again, this could change at any time if Upstart is doing the wrong, starts doing the wrong thing. But if they're continuing to try to do the right thing, we don't have any immediate intention of bringing a fair lending violation, you know, case against them because they're trying to use new data sources for this purpose, right? We, you know, we all know that the existing system to Dan's point is highly correlated with race, you know, and, and, and has huge uh, disparities. So Upstart's one of those entities is trying to improve it. They're trying to do something new. And so we don't have any intention of bringing a, uh, an enforcement action against them as long as they continue to operate in the way they're doing and they're, you know, to, reporting data to us. That worked quite well for quite a while. And it helped us sort of, I think, get confidence in ourselves and also uh, market participants. We now have a hundred lenders using our technology. I think it gave them some confidence that we weren't hiding the shadows or using a black box algorithm that we were trying to do the right thing. The, the challenge becomes scaling that, right? How do, how do you scale something that worked in an anecdotal one case, one-off case with 50 upstarts or 100 upstarts, those that are trying to do something new. Um, and it's hard. I don't think there's an easy answer. And, and that program has now been sort of modified and, and mostly sort of disbanded. 
Um, but it was a good idea in the sense that it made regulators more familiar with some of the things that were on the cutting edge of innovation. And it gave a, a new market participant an opportunity to innovate within a regulated context. Um, <clears throat> I think that the, the, the longer term probably, um, you know, arrangement that would work better is some degree of data sharing. Um, and and the data sharing related to that status quo that Daniel talked about is like if you can hit a benchmark of some kind that shows that you're improving on the status quo with regards to some intractable problem like unfairness in 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 access to financial service. You know we live in a deeply you know unequal country. There's going to be inequality that's going to emerge in every avenue. But if you're showing an ability to improve on the status quo based on some benchmark, then as long as you report data, you should feel pretty pretty confident that you're not that you're not running towards a violation. And so I think the government can probably do a better job of of data collection and transparency to the to the market um, about about different fields. And I'm I'm reminded of the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act is a great area where you know banks are are obligated to kind of check in on the fairness of their lending using real data. Um, that would be a an area where the government could kind of promote innovation by setting some benchmarks that that uh, would would help people know where they're shooting, what they're shooting at. So I'd I'd love to jump in on that question of how do you scale, you know, those sandboxes or those innovation offices or labs like within financial regulators and. You know, I think I think we started some very good work over the last decade or so, and it's been across multiple administrations where we were developing the capability within financial regulators to engage with the industry. Part of a sandbox is to help, you know, foster some degree of innovation. But more importantly, the part that I was always focused on in my old role at the CFTC is learning internally. The regulator should learn from that engagement and then use that to help inform broader policy. So what could happen is you learn that new models can be more fair. They can be more transparent. You get to actually see them, touch them, engage with them. That should then lead to broader policy formation. So you can start to put out guidance saying, you know, again, to the contrary of the adverse action guidance that we saw, you would frame it very differently. You would come out and say, hey, we're realizing that the standard of care can, can be raised. We actually can do more today than we could with legacy models. That would actually encourage small FIs, small financial institutions and banks to look for ways to leverage new technology to do better. That's that improvement off of the status quo that we should be encouraging. So that, that's the way I would think about scaling is that you know those types of innovation offices or sandboxes should never be siloed. Um, it should never be viewed as kind of like a one-off. It should be kind of integral to the regulator itself to help inform the regulator. It's the only way, quite frankly, that financial regulators are going to keep pace with everything that's going on in the marketplace. If you don't have those touch points, trying to make policy, you know, I made a joke at the beginning of this saying, if you watch an episode of Black Mirror, but I'm kind of, I'm not joking that there's a, there's a real risk that if you're not close to the tech, if you don't have kind of that front row observation, uh, how can you make good policy? How can you skate to where the puck is heading? Um, so that's how I think about the, you know, the importance of those types of efforts within a, within a regulator and how you could scale it. Yeah. And the better so, you know it, the yeah. more, so, so just to point about existing law. So we have, you know, UDAP laws on the books, right? So unfair, deceptive acts and practices. 
And if you know the technology well, because you're invested in understanding it and treating new, new technology fairly compared to old technology, then you'll have a better sense of, of where the old laws like UDAP, law, UDAP laws aren't new. They have nothing, they're not new for the AI era, they're, they exist, but you would know how to apply them really well, right? You'd have a better sense of how to apply them. So I think, I think Daniel's right, is finding ways to bring the government into closer proximity with the innovation that's happening out there so that they can see where the, where the old laws can be applied rather than we have to reinvent the wheel with new policies, new laws, new regulation, new guidance all the time few minutes i'd love to take some audience questions and we have a we have a one here that i think is a, a really good uh segue from that um so roger asks in what ways can the government use ai to help regulate ai so, so i I'm, I'm happy to jump in because i think it's part of that innovation office concept as well i think that this is exactly why you need that kind of function within agencies to make sure that you're also thinking about internal modernization um, during my time in government, we talked a lot about the importance of becoming a quantitative regulator. It will be impossible for regulators to continue using analog technologies to, 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 to surveil, to monitor, uh, to police different types of markets. So, you know, whether it's in trade surveillance and transaction uh, uh, trade monitoring in the capital markets, regulators have to be using new AI tools to detect fraudulent manipulative trading practices. When you look at anti-money laundering, there's an incredible opportunity to make those systems uh, far more effective and efficient. I mean, right now, I think many folks kind of joining us say know that the AML system is wildly inefficient. And we actually send incredible amounts of, of information, you know, from industry to government that I don't know how well and effectively that's actually being processed. If you had more precise tools, you could be far more effective. So countering illicit finance could be improved. Um, as I said, transaction monitoring could be uh, uh, vastly improved um, and trying to detect new areas of risk in the market. Um, we've long thought, like, are there ways for us to be able to measure kind of economic output, figure out if there are asset bubbles forming in certain parts of the economy? Using these tools and technologies would get you there. Uh, but again, I think that the regulators are going to have to have a bit more of a, of a hands-on approach to make sure that we understand what's available. Yeah, AI in the lending context, AI could be used by the government to assess, you know, a, um, a traditional lender's lending outcomes. They could say, you know, let's look at your applicant pool and who you approved and who you declined and whether your applicant pool could have been more inclusive, i.e. You, you, you could have reached out safely to a, a lot more people and you could have approved a lot more people. And, and AI would be able to tell you that because you could, you know, you can use the data, the data and the processing power to, to kind of compare data sets to, to look at like, hey, the, the AI model would have done better. And so that it could be a tool in supervision um, of lending. Uh, AI should, should definitely be a tool. And I think the regulatory agencies are desperately trying to hire um, data scientists and, and AI experts for, for just that reason today. I think it's just, um, you know, it's a challenging, it's a challenging market as we all know to hire in. And to that point, we, we actually have an audience question about um, bringing technical expertise into government and government technical capacity. Um, and Amy, I remember you uh, mentioning earlier that, you know, uh, this might be an area where we're jumping the gun. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? And I would love to hear any, anyone else jump in on it too. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll echo some of what's been said already, but it's really critical that the regulators understand the technology. It, you, you can't you can't kind of operate on gut and and your fears of black mirror or whatever it is. Um, it, this it's it's an area where you really do have to kind of deeply get into what might a system do, what might not it do, what are the what are the guardrails in place in it, and you know where where are the potential flaws in it? Because if you don't understand that, you that you can't regulate it. You certainly can't use it. Um, and it's it's a it's a really complex technology, and there are ways in which it can go in directions that you don't anticipate. And so you've got to have people kind of monitoring that. I wholeheartedly agree with all of that. Um, but it does it does sort of mean you've got to have people that can do the coding, people who are engineers working in government, um, you know, listening. As Daniel said, to those in the in the space, and you know, making informed decisions rather than just you know decisions based on you know what they found on the internet. If we have uh, no other uh, thoughts on that question, um, I would just love to thank all of you so much for what has been a, a truly informative uh, and great conversation. Uh, I love that the panelists were really um, addressing one another's comments and really listening to one another. I, I think this was, uh, for me, a great learning experience and I'm confident that it was for our audience as well. So uh, please join me in thanking Amy, Daniel, and Nat for their time today and for sharing their expertise.